This week's byword is for all the gaming chair philosophers out there as we share our favorite fan theories. So grab your tinfoil and head to the bunker. The byword begins now. Welcome to another episode of the Nerd by Word, the only nerd culture podcast that's so good you don't have to imprison it in a slab or carbonite. Dave and I are here once more to cover all things nerd-centric as today's Byword Big Talk takes us to the outer rim of reality with our favorite fan theories. But first, Dave, being the religious one here, is dancing with his hands above his head like Jesus says in this week's... Yeah, so uh, I can't I can't argue with uh, your assessment of my dancing. Although uh, I'm definitely not going to let anybody see um, me do so because my dancing is about the widest thing you'll ever see. Uh, my Germanic heritage is in full effect there. Um, but yeah, I mean, good news, everybody. Uh, if you are one of the millions of people who really got into the new Adams Family adaptation on Netflix, focusing on Wednesday, aptly titled. Wednesday, uh, then we got some good news. Very recently, as of this recording, we just found out that Wednesday has in fact been renewed for a second season. Now, uh, this should have been a no-brainer, yet for some reason, it was not. Uh, It turns out that Wednesday has been uh, repeatedly setting records at Netflix uh, upon its debut week uh, in November. Uh, The show racked up 341.2 million viewing hours, uh, beating Stranger Things, which has been Netflix's probably biggest hit. Um, By December 13th, uh, the show had crossed 1 billion hours viewed. Uh, It's also the number one show in 83 countries, which ties it with Stranger Things. So Netflix has been, of course, for years now going all in uh, on Stranger Things. So it should not be uh, a shocking development that this show has been renewed for a second season. However, it kind of is because Netflix is notorious for, in fact, not going all in on its shows, even the more successful ones, and not giving them multiple seasons necessarily. Uh, the amount of shows that have been canceled rather quickly at Netflix, despite high quality, is uh, prodigious. And we have talked at length about our opinions on how streaming has fundamentally changed the longevity of television shows. So I'm actually, uh, I'm very pleased. I thought the uh, the first season was very good, um, but it also worked uh, sort of a self-contained story for the most part. There were some dangling plot threads, but overall, uh, fairly well self-contained. So if they would have not gotten a second season, uh, I think we could have all been pretty satisfied with the show overall. But I'm also pleased that they'll be able to continue telling the story. You know, a, a note here that I'd like to throw out there um, is that uh, the the show's success is in large part probably to be credited to Jenna, Jenna Ortega, whose performance as Wednesday is absolutely ridiculous. I'm a huge fan of what she does with the character. Um, but in the media, the thing that they talk most about is probably that Tim Burton is involved in executive producing these sh- this show. Uh, what most media outlets fail to mention is that the creators of the show who have adapted uh, The Adams Family into Wednesday are actually Al Kauf and Miles Miller. Uh, for those of you uh, who have been in the nerd world for more than just a year or two, you probably know those names as the creators uh, on Smallville. So uh, we, we have a deeper nerd connection there to that show as well. So uh, overall, just really good news to see that Wednesday is going to be coming back for a second season. No timetable, obviously, yet. They haven't even filmed uh, the second season or written any scripts yet. Um, But it's good to know that we'll be uh, getting more of this absolutely stellar performance. Chris? Yeah, I'm super excited. I haven't had the chance to sit down and watch this series yet, but um, everything that I've seen peripherally from it is just... It's just amazing. And Jenna Ortega is at the forefront of that. And so I'm hoping that those rumors we reported on a couple of weeks ago are true and that she is indeed going to be White Tiger. Um, 
<clears throat> but nonetheless, I'm excited to see this go forward. And as you as you stated, it kind of bucks the trend of Netflix inexplicably, uh, you know, canceling popular shows. So I'm glad to see this one when going on. I know we were holding out even longer than this for the Sandman. Yeah, exactly. And it's just the Sandman qualitatively is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, uh, it, it's some of Gaiman's finest work and absolutely uh, a stellar adaptation on Netflix. So uh, streaming is weird, man. Mm-hmm. It's just weird when it comes to, to, to television shows and, and, you know, show longevity. Um, the days of 22 episode seasons stretching for five to 10. I mean, Smallville lasted for 10 years at like what, 20, 22 episodes a season. That, that just doesn't seem to really exist anymore. I mean, the first season of, uh, of Wednesday was eight episodes and then you're just kind of clamoring. Are there, are we going to get another eight? You know, um, the world has changed, man. Yeah. It's, it's like pick your poison. It's either Netflix canceling something that was popular or it's HBO max and Warner brothers. Like, completely erasing looney tunes or other popular cartoons and shows from the matrix like oh no that never happened yeah yeah exactly all righty so uh chris what are you bringing to the nerd news table this week well it feels as though the vast majority of our news stories uh since james gunn and peter saffron were announced as co-heads of the dc film universe have almost been exclusively in that realm but here goes another one Uh, Variety recently reported that some executives at Warner Brothers Discovery are, quote, amenable with the Flash actor Ezra Miller remaining in the role moving forward and continuing to work with the company as he as they have had uh, no further incidents since starting mental health treatment this past summer. Fans of our show will, of course, remember the laundry list of offenses that the actor has incurred over the past year plus including multiple alleged assaults and or harassments during a stay in Hawaii. And yes, this is legit thing that happened. An alleged abduction of an indigenous teenager with reports of cult-like behavior swirling around that entire situation. So on one hand, I'm glad to hear that Miller is seemingly receiving the the treatment that they need. Um, But I think that the optics of this continuing story are horrendous for a company that should be desperate for positive PR. Uh, they cause significant, uh, they, meaning Miller, cause significant harm to multiple individuals and families, and undergoing therapy is not sufficient, uh, in my opinion, for them to just continue to get the spotlight. Uh, continuing to work with them without any measures of accountability is an extremely bad look, in my opinion. What are your thoughts, Dave? Uh, don't want, don't need. Um, if we're actually gonna go ahead and discard, uh, you know, Henry Cavill, then uh, you know, for a fresh start, then we definitely need to discard Ezra Miller as well. I don't think that the uh, the Flash franchise or the new DCU needs this kind of um, reputation hanging over it. I think this is just overall a, a troubling situation. I'm also not a very big fan of that interpretation of the Flash. Uh, I don't think he really comes across as even being Barry Allen in any way, shape, or form. Uh, his whole characteristics, his whole mannerisms, everything's just so far removed from what Barry is like in the comic books. I would much, much rather see either a new actor take on the role, or better yet, uh, give Wally West a shot um, as the main Flash. Uh, so if we're going to go ahead and start fresh, the last thing we need is the potential for Ezra Miller's shenanigans to completely derail uh, the future of a new DC cinematic universe. Totally agree. Uh, So that wraps up nerd news for this week. When we return from our first break, we're coming at you with our favorite fan theories. Welcome back to this week's byword. And this week we thought we'd just have some fun and speculate on our favorite fan theories. Some of these have already been solved, some have been have not, and some are just kind of uh, up in the air and just for fun. Now, before we start, uh, and we're doing the typical three in three fashion, I'm someone who's who's never really paid much credence to fan theories, so I went for the big ones and the fun ones. So not necessarily, I don't know that I believe them per se but uh they are really fun to think about so dave what is your first uh fan theory that you like to spotlight 
Yeah, so this one is uh, shouldn't come as any surprise to most people who've been reading comic books for a while. Um, and even uh, some creators have been playing with this notion on and off over the years. Um, I, my, one of my favorite fan theories is that simply that uh, Jim Gordon, the commissioner of Gotham City, is fully aware that Bruce Wayne is Batman, but is simply unable to acknowledge it in any way, shape, or form for fear that he's going to have to, you know, try to arrest him. So you know, he goes with full plausible deniability and and just basically turns a blind eye to the whole situation because he knows that uh, that Gotham needs Batman. Um, now, this has been, you know, depending on the adaptation, ex- made explicit, made implicit, or even completely rebuked. If you look, for example, at the... Uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, very, very clear when, when you know, Batman sort of indicates that he's Bruce Wayne to James Gordon at the end of uh, The Dark Knight Rises, that he's, he's surprised, so he didn't know there. Um, but if you look like at uh, uh, Batman Year One, for example, uh, th- there's an implication there that uh, Gordon has figured it out. Um, I think my favorite instance of all this is, um, I, I want to say this was No Man's Land, uh, when uh, you know Gotham basically literally gets cut off from the rest of the United States, it's a thing. A really cool storyline. Um, but at one point, uh, Batman literally is standing there, takes his mask off, and is trying to tell Gordon as a show of trust who he is. And Gordon has his back turned and basically says, "I don't want to know, or maybe I already know. Either way, it doesn't matter. Put it back on." And I think that's just a really, really cool moment and perfectly encapsulates that fan theory. Um, but the best the best take on that comes from the most unlikely source, which is um, uh, in the Injustice comic book. In the Injustice comic book, uh, there's a fantastic scene where uh, Gordon goes to uh, his daughter, Oracle, um, and says, listen, let's, let's cut out the crap. I need your help. I know. I know about Bruce. I know about you. I know about the whole situation. And, and Barbara just sits there and, and is stunned and says, how? And he says, how? I'm a detective. Like, <laughs> you know, how yep. would I not know? Yep. I knew from the first moment you climbed out of that window with Dick Grayson, you know, like, <laughs> so um, I really like this theory that it's sort of an unspoken truth between the two characters that that he knows but can't acknowledge it. Uh, I, I think that works extremely well and, and adds a nice additional wrinkle to that relationship, which I think is so interesting and complex anyways in the comics to begin with. What's your take, Chris? Yeah, I, I, you, you nailed it. I mean, like, it's kind of insulting to assume that he doesn't, you know, that he's a detective worth his salt, unless, you know, we're going with like the, the Joel Schumacher, Jim Gordon, where he's just, just like the, or like the old sixties one, where it's just like bumbling idiot you know, in a police uniform, because I'm like, if, yeah. you're, if you're a detective, you know, worth any kind of salt, I mean, like, you're going to be able to put that two and two together, especially his own daughter. Like, come on. <laughs> hmm. Red hair. <laughs> um, yeah. Same, same voice. Um, yeah. The, the most egregious uh, is my new favorite DC character. And that would be my beloved Dick Grayson. Uh, who are you fooling with that Mardi Gras mask, my friend? Because we can see, 90% of your face, especially with some artists, they render it very thin. So um, it's, it's just, it's just hilarious at this point, like the whole masquerade of, 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 of Dick, especially, but, but Barbara as well. Um, Bruce, he's got most of his face covered, but um, you know, after all those years of working side by side, you'd think, you'd think Jim would know. Yeah, yeah. It's the same, I think, the same concept with, like, Lois Lane. I always hated the versions where Superman, like, eventually comes out and tells her, and she's all shocked that Mm -hmm. Clark and Superman are the same. I think the take of that, I ironically like the best, is the the 90s Lois and Clark show uh, featuring Terry Hatcher and some individual i'm not familiar with playing superman um but clark kent like proposes to lois lane and she's like who's asking clark or superman and i was like yes because lois lane is not an idiot she's the best investigative reporter in the nation she can figure this out she does not need you to tell her i think gordon kind of falls in the same category if we're saying he's a good cop he can't you know be completely oblivious all right, Chris, so what is your... <laughs> oh, no. I just looked at our yeah. list. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I don't really traffic in fan theories. So 
for several reasons, it's probably the most famous fan theory of all time. Uh, I also think it's just hilarious. Um, and I also was just watching Phantom Menace yesterday. So we've we've got to unpack the Gungan in the room. Uh, and that, of course, would be the Darth Jar Jar fan theory uh, for multiple reasons. Um, I'm looking at a Screen Rant article that, you know, has like 10 reasons why. Um, of course, the first one that, that really people think of is Yoda's introduction as this just like annoying... Um, little alien that that is super bothersome uh one of my favorite bad lip reading videos where he assaults r2d2 and steals their snacks um but for me like the ones where i i don't know that i prescribe to it per se but his idiocy and his fumbling all over everything he's he can't be that lucky he can't, he can't be, uh, the Screen Rent article says he dodges death with uncanny precision. With those explosive materials, those flubber bombs or whatever they are in, in Phantom Menace, um, could easily have made him explode. The one that kind of tips the scale for me is he's the one who gives Palpatine the emergency powers in the Senate. So that's the, I think that's probably the most striking thing that gives it any kind of credence um infiltrating the senate as they said here uh and then and then going on to give emergency power so maybe they're in on it they're they're in cahoots uh they also said that he uses hand gestures when he wants to change someone's opinion um but yeah i think it i think it's a really funny one and um you know, kind of makes you look at a, a character that that was met with so much anger and resentment immediately. And so where at least you can laugh about it and, and not be upset. Yeah, laugh about it. I do. Uh, it's about the only thing funny about Jar Jar Binks. Um, I'll freely admit I never liked the character much. Um, and he, the the reduction of his role in in Attack of the Clones and and uh, you know the Revenge of the Sith was probably a uh, the most welcome thing about those movies. <laughs> um, I do not subscribe to this theory. I think it's kind of funny to imagine you know bumbling Jar Jar suddenly drops all the Misa stuff and is like, "Ha ha, I fooled you!" Like with perfect you know perfect enunciation. I think that would be hilarious, but I I don't think it's necessarily a, like credible within the context of, of what's given my my feelings about jar jar i think are some of the best i think it was either a, um, a comic book over a dark horse it's no longer canon i don't think or some short story where they kind of hint that he basically end up poor and destitute on the streets of of, of naboo performing like a, a like a clown on the side of the street to try to get some money from you know beggar style uh, that's a fitting end for an absolutely uh, horrendous character. So that, that's that's okay by me. That, I like I like that that theory better than than Darth Jar Jar. Maybe. <laughs> All right, Dave. I'm trying to remember this character. Is this the the weird science guy from uh, All Star Superman? Yes. So um, let's talk about All Star Superman, which I still think is like easily in the top five greatest Superman stories ever told. Um, I absolutely adore All Star and and Morrison. Uh, they knock it out of the park with this one. Absolutely, from a writing perspective, it's it's pitch perfect. But there is one thing that the fans came up with um, that Morrison was actually asked about, and Morrison specifically debunked. And uh, I was actually sad to see this theory debunked because I really like it. It it kind of harkens back to one of my favorite moments uh, in the whole story, which is that. At the end, you know, Lex Luthor, you know, takes some drugs that give him basically Superman's abilities. And then once he actually is literally able to see the world through Superman's eyes, he has this drug-induced epiphany, which sounds very Morrison. Drug-induced epiphany, right? And it's al it's almost a moment of, of redemption for Lex Luthor. And then that's it. The character just kind of disappears from the rest of the story, right? And I know there's not a lot of story left. I mean, Superman flies up and, and starts, you know, trying to fix the sun and, you know, they never see him again, blah, blah. Um, but this fan theory proposes that Lex Luthor actually is um, also Leo Quintum. Uh, so Leo Quintum is an original character for All-Star Superman and is a scientist 
that is working with Superman and is trying to save his life as he's slowly dying through the course of All-Star Superman. Uh, and, you know, the hints are kind of very um, Morrisonian, I guess you could say, throughout. Uh, for example, there is a scene in the book where uh, Luther and, and Quintum actually are talking and somebody said, asks Luther, are you talking to yourself again? Which, you know, is, is such a, a, a Morrison hint to drop. Uh, there's a moment where um, Superman entrusts his genetic code, his, uh, you know, the entire DNA sequence to Quintum. And Quintum says, I could be the devil himself for all you know. Um, then there's the fact that uh, they both wear the same kind of uh, coat, right? This like trench coat, which is not usually uh, typically a Lex Luthor look. Uh, the fact that they both tend to walk around with their hands behind their back. Or the fact that Luther actually has a has an ape that's called Leo. <laughs> uh, I've even seen uh, some people put out... Um, the the theory that uh, Lex Luthor's cell uh, number when he's in prison two two one also points towards Leo Quintum because if you add the numbers together two two one that's five that's a quint so na named after the ape and his cell number Leo Quintum uh, it's actually kind of a cool idea to think that Luther having experienced uh, an epiphany and a, you know redemption then travels back in time altering his appearance slightly and tries to actually assist Superman and make up for all the stuff that he's done. Um, but again, Morrison, Morrison ultimately said, no, it's just, you know, uh, the parallels are there to kind of mirror Luther, you know, Luther's the bad scientist, Quintum's the good scientist. And he, uh, they mentioned that, uh, Quintum had almost been an avatar of the new gods. Um, but Morrison rejected that idea uh, at the last second and basically just went with, you know, good scientist, bad scientist, two sides of the same coin. I don't know, man. I really like the notion of, of Lex Luthor traveling back in time and, and trying to help Superman uh, after a moment of redemption. I really like this one uh, and I wished it was true. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's it's been a couple months since I read that, so it kind of makes me look back on it with with different eyes. Because you know, as as a relative newcomer to um, Morrison, to a certain degree, I mean, I read his X Men's, uh, excuse me, their X Men stuff, um, but then you know, as a relatively new DC consumer, um, I didn't really make those connections. So that's that definitely uh, pun intended colors. Uh, my opinion of the situation now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's just it's it's just this cool little additional wrinkle that I wished actually existed within the story. Um, but maybe that's just me. All right, that brings us to. Uh... You know, I need to stop looking at this list because every time <laughs> I look at what you're getting ready to talk about next, I kind of just roll my eyes and I'm like, "Do I really need to talk about this right now?" All right, all right, all right. Go ahead, talk about the. Uh, the hot chief summer yet again. Here we go. Big poppy Palpatine. Uh, <laughs> so this one, uh, according to Screen Rant, has been debunked. But it's so, it's one that I still kind of give some credence to. Because the, the Christ-like parallels are so annoying sometimes in popular fiction. Star Wars uh, particularly makes me roll my eyes. Um, but the whole virgin birth uh there was no father immaculate conception uh is kind of annoying in the phantom menace so i was like of course it would make sense that you know palpatine would force project his seed into shmi uh and and sire this child it just makes sense and that would make sense why he has immediate nepotism for him and even in at the end of of phantom menace where he's like we will be watching your career with great interest like not sinister at all like it just makes me uh freshly upset about how clueless the jedi council is in that entire trilogy um maybe the dead the jedi did deserve to die because like what kind of detectives are you uh peacekeepers maybe but detectives you are not um, so I don't know. It's, it, so I guess it recently was debunked in, in a recent Star Wars comic, the Darth Vader number 25. Um, but I still, I still, there's something there. It's just so annoying that, that 
Uh, I just don't like those religious parallels being overused. And overused they are. I I, I didn't like the the space Jesus implications there either. Um, but I don't think uh, the, the the Palpatine theory is um, a, a good fix for that necessarily either. Uh, there's definitely something a little rapey about it. Uh, yeah. But then there's also there's also like a, a, a lot of other implications. Like the the theory that I saw specifically is not that that Anakin then is Palpatine's son so much as that how 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 was the theory put that he excited the midichlorians in Shmi's body to start cell division or something so basically th- th- there really is no father but the initial the inciting incident was caused by palpatine so there's still no direct relation um you know that would also color a lot of relationships in the sequel trilogy very very differently right or or you know um if you think about it, uh, if if Palpatine is supposed to be like Anakin's quote-unquote father, then in Return of the Jedi, for example, that whole th- uh, throne room scene on the second Death Star is basically grandfather, father, and grandson having it out. Talk about a family squabble, right? Um, and then that brings up the possible then the, the thing that Rey is literally related to the Skywalkers, right? <laughs> um, so th- th- there's this; it's just a little weird. Um, Makes it makes her relationship with Ben quasi- incestuous. So, yeah, although that 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 whole relationship is also very weirdly drawn again because they couldn't make up their mind what they were actually going for with those two characters either, right? Um, yeah, the sequel trilogy is so much wasted potential. So you know, I so it's a weird little fan theory. I'm glad that they ended up um, debunking this. Now I did read somewhere though, and I would have to double check on this to see if this is accurate. But I seem to recall reading that this was actually um, in a script that Lucas wrote initially, and that he actually took it out. So uh, if that is accurate, then it's not so much a fan theory as a rejected plotline. Um, I'm definitely going to have to look deeper into that to see if that's you know actually a thing or not. Um, but it is it is for sure a weird thought to think creepy old Palpatine is like I don't know. Did he have to go to Tatooine to do this, or did he like force project from Coruscant into why some random slave on Tatooine? Um, it raises a lot of questions. Uh, Dave, this one, this one is new to me, but you're, get, get, y'all, get someone that loves you like Dave loves Owen Lars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll always get back to Owen. Um, so, so, so let's go ahead and talk about, about some more Star Wars because, you know, uh, lots and lots of fan theories. This too, uh, has been debunked. Um, in, in a sense, and and I'll talk more about that in a second. But here is a fairly popular Star Wars fan theory, and that is that technically, in A New Hope, when uh, you know Owen, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru uh, end up as the latest barbecue on Tatooine, that this was not in fact the doing of stormtroopers, but it is the uh, in fact the doing of Boba Fett. Um. Interesting. So first, we need to establish: was he even there? Well, we know that there, you know, there was a deleted scene that eventually was restored in the special editions, where Han Solo is talking to Jabba the Hutt uh, on Tatooine about the money that he owes him, right? And they couldn't get the creature effect figured out, and then later on they reinserted it digitally. Now, at the very end of that scene, uh, Han Solo gets back on the Millennium Falcon. The camera pans, and there stands. Boba Fett. So, at least as of the special editions, uh, technically, he's there. Um, So then, what else points to uh, this being a Boba Fett situation? Well, for one, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi famously in that scene says that the shots were too precise to um, to be Tusken Raiders, right? So, it must have been um, Stormtroopers. Now, here, of course, is the problem. In Obi-Wan's time, uh, the clone troopers might have been really good shots, but the stormtroopers of the uh, original trilogy were, shall we say, legendarily bad at aiming. Um, I would not want to go into the Death Star bathroom. Uh, The toilets must have been an awful mess. 
Um, so what that means then is, is that that precision could be the result of Boba Fett, who is literally uh, a clone of, of, of Jango Fett, who is the template for all the clone troopers. So that precision that Obi-Wan is familiar with, um, well, would be right there in him and not in the stormtroopers. Um, but the cincher is when you get to Empire Strikes Back, and all the uh, bounty hunters are lined up, and uh, Vader's going to use them to try to find, you know, uh, Solo and the Millennium Falcon. He says specifically to Boba Fett, "No disintegrations," um, which is interesting. Uh, could be that he's saying that specifically because of Owen and Guru, because nowhere else that I am at least familiar with in the Star Wars films, do we see stormtroopers literally going scorched earth like that, where they literally kill somebody and then set them on fire. However, uh, Boba Fett very famously has a nice little flamethrower attachment on his armor. So um, it is a fun fan theory. However, there was a novel uh, from a certain point of view um, that came out a few years ago. It's a uh, retelling of A New Hope from a variety of different perspectives, and one of the chapters is actually um, Boba Fett as the narrator. Um, And actually, uh, it's uh, the the, the no uh, disintegrations thing is apparently because he quote-unquote crisped some rebel spies back on Coruscant um, so apparently this is not due to Owen and Beru's charred corpses, um, but it is still uh, a neat little fan theory. Chris, what are your thoughts on this one? So this is interesting. This is all new to me. So this is a real time reaction. I think for me, this is probably just like um, a, a retroactive fan theory created out of the popularity and the untimely demise of Boba Fett. I mean, look no further than his return in the Mandalorian uh, and the book of Boba Fett escaping the Sarlacc pit, because I think I, I may be misremembering, but I think I remember, um, you know, George Lucas saying I never would have killed him off. I had any idea how popular he would, you know, come to be. So this was, that's probably, um, you know, the source of all this, but it, it is really interesting to kind of think about. I will also not credit Disney with reviving Boba Fett and getting him out of the Sarlacc because uh, the expanded universe already did that. So he literally uh, escaped the Sarlacc twice. So uh, just saying. Stop trying to make stop trying to make expanded universe happen, Gretchen. It's not going to happen. Uh, it already has happened, and uh, still is extremely popular, even though uh, it's not official anymore. They can call it legends all they want to. Um, Mara Jade lives on in my heart. <laughs> so what? What, Chris? Then is your God bless it. Did I just see Mephisto? You did. <laughs> like I said, I don't really, I don't really pay attention to fan theories. Like all of this is pretty new to me. Um, the the Darth Jar Jar was the only one that I knew before prep for this episode. I spent two hours looking at fan theories. There are people who think that Sandy was dead the whole time in Greece, and then. F- floating away at the end is her ascending to heaven because she drowned at the beginning there are people who think that uh donkey is one of the boys from pinocchio that got turned into a donkey and because that's the only thing that makes sense i dude it was it was a weird experience but i'm adding the mephisto of it all uh, the Mephisto saga, if you will, because it was hilarious watching people rage and be disappointed every week of not just WandaVision, but every subsequent uh, Disney plus Marvel show, because it was Mephisto in every corner of every scene. So I'm reading again. Screen Rant is coming through today in the clutch. So uh, the rabbit. Senor Scratchy was supposed to be Mephisto. Agatha's husband, Ralph, was supposed to be Mephisto. Fake Pietro, Ralph Boner, was supposed to be Pietro. Uh, it's I, be Mephisto. I, lo- I love Ralph. Bo- I love Ralph Boner. Best MCU character by far. <laughs> Dottie, um, you'll remember from uh, the the first Emma Caulfield Jones's character from the black and white episodes was supposed to be Mephisto. I think they even said the devil's in the details. Um, there was a cicada on the curtain that was supposed to be Mephisto. Um, 
And I wouldn't even make this comparison, but the doucher director Hayward, like he's Mephisto's not that bad. That guy was awful. Um, that sword director, but yeah. And then, you know, it continued on into, you know, things like Loki. We're like Mephisto's behind this and just watching people be disappointed at every turn was great. I don't understand this. I don't mean, I don't mean to be like dense or something, but I do not understand the, the obsession with, with Mephisto Mephisto, as far as I'm concerned. And I, 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 I know I'm not as well-versed in Marvel as some people, but I've read a fair share, and the only thing that I can think of that Mephisto has any claim to fame for is is more infamy, and that is you know the, the ending of the marriage between Peter Parker and Mary Jane. Other than that, I cannot point at a particular story or anything that comes to mind that makes him even remotely interesting or relevant as a villain. And so this absolute obsession with Mephisto showing up in the MCU is beyond me in every way, <laughs> shape, or form. I think the DC Universe devil, Nero, is more interesting character than Mephisto. And Nero really was introduced during Underworld Unleashed as a way of just like revamping a bunch of villains by giving them new powers in exchange for their souls. Like, like that was the whole purpose of that character. And that character is more interesting than Mephisto. So I have absolutely no idea what's happening that people are so obsessed and want Mephisto so bad. As far as I'm concerned, that character can rot in a ditch. I have absolutely no need ever to see Mephisto in live action. Ever. I don't know. If he's played by Sasha Baron Cohen, I might be here for it. Um, the the reason it was so attached to WandaVision, if I remember correctly, um, is in the comics her twins it wound up that her twins were a construct of Mephisto and, and instead they chose to go a different direction and them being constructs of her reality altering stuff or whatever. Um, but for me, it's just also laughable because there are so many people that just want straight carbon copies with comic book movies and series. And I think that's just so boring. Like read the comic book. Like for me, the interesting thing when the MCU, go, it, the most interesting things in the MCU is when they go off script and they create something that's entirely their own, you know, and they just have fun with it. You know, if you want, and it's cute to have like Easter eggs and touchstones of popular comic book moments, Steve Rogers lifting Mjolnir, that was great. But like just word for word straight comic adaptations like that's just boring just read the comic book and so like i think that's the heart of their disappointment is because it wasn't a straight adaptation but like who wants that uh yeah i will agree with that who wants a straight adaptation of something like that yeah yeah i totally agree with that man all right that wraps up our bayward big talk what are your favorite fan theories what did we miss was Nemo dead the whole time. That was another one. Nemo didn't really exist. He died in the Barracuda attack, and it was just Marlin's manifestation of the five stages of grief. That was depressing. Um, also impossible considering Dory actually talks to him at the end. Well, I don't know if that's a reputable source. <laughs> like that, 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 that one doesn't make sense. I, I do. Did you, did you ever watch Scrubs? I uh I I dipped in and out like I watched it in like syndication and I really really enjoyed yeah. it. I I loved Scrubs. Um, even even though some of the humor hasn't always uh, aged very well, I, I was a big fan at the time. And did, did you know that one of the running theories about the janitor was that he was a figment uh, of JD's imagination? That makes so because much sense. Because in the. It, during during like almost the entire I think the whole first season or something he does not interact with any other characters except JD. So during the first season people were starting to theorize that he was like a figment of JD's imagination and then you know as the series progressed and they had to like come up with new storylines and stuff he started interacting with other characters but initially it was just the only interactions we would ever see is between the janitor and JD. That that's an interesting take actually. 
uh, Doctor Cox is one of my favorite characters of any show ever, and John Cena of all time. I I love John C. McGinley as an actor. I think he's so funny. His delivery has me in stitches all the time. That snarky sarcasm, oh, it's so great. I still think that the easiest the easiest hit TV show that you can create is do a show about a, a high school teacher and just make a Doctor Cox with a different name. Yes, well, and, and just aim know. all that. I don't aim know. all. We better get our residuals. Some high school kids. <laughs> we better we better get Just our residuals because, like, I mean, like that's a look inside our classroom. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just all that snark directed at, at kids that don't want to do their work and and crazy parents, and it that that would be a comedy that I could get behind. Yeah, having to sit in disciplinary meetings because you mouthed off to the wrong student. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> went off topic again while 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 we're on the topic go watch abbott elementary it's 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 everything as a public school teacher, I, hear, I hear good things it's so great so great um that being said when we come back from our final break nerd commendations All right, we are back for the fan favorite segment. You know it as. All right, Dave, what is your latest nerd commendation? Uh, She-Hulk. Not the TV show, believe it or not, though. Um, I'm actually uh, a massive uh, She-Hulk comic book fan um, to the point where I have some uh, collected editions sitting on my shelf here. Um, I've read uh, several complete runs. Um, big, big action. Actually, I'm, I'm going to just say it, although, you know, I, I know he's not the most popular dude on, on planet Earth, but I liked really like Dan Slott's take on She-Hulk. That run was really good. Um, and so I was thrilled to see uh, that uh, around the time that She-Hulk came out, Synergy, everybody, uh, there was a new She-Hulk comic book coming out. And uh, lo and behold, it's really, really good. I mean, like, really good. It's written by Rainbow Rubble. Uh, it has a Jen Bartel as the cover artist. And let me tell you, these covers are stunning. I told stunning. you about her. I told you about her a long time ago. Yeah, well, I learned my lesson, man. These covers are ridiculous. It's almost enough to get me into buying single issues again. Um, several artists have sort of come and gone. You have uh, Rose Antonio. Uh, you have um, uh, Takeshi Miyazawa. Uh, was uh, doing that for a while, uh, Luca Maresca. Um, so there's been sort of a, a who's who of artists on the book, but the, the art is shockingly consistent despite the artist changes from issue to issue. Um, so it's 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 pretty impressive. Uh, I think nine issues have been released as of the time of this recording, um, and it it feels right, man. It picks up on some of the strands that were left behind years ago on Dan Slott's run and brings some uh, some characters back from that. Um, probably because some of those characters also popped up in the MCU show. Um, it it returns uh, She-Hulk uh, back to her roots. Uh, she's back in, in law practice, reconnecting with some people that have been friends in the past, um, including, uh, what's-her-face, Hellcat. Um, so there's, there's really cool stuff happening. But the most interesting through line so far has been that there's this really obscure former Avenger that has been dead, or believed dead that suddenly pops up uh, looking for her for help from her and has no memory what happened to him called Jack of Hearts. And the two uh, never really were able to get very close because he has like radiation based powers. And if he touches her, he like absorbs her radiation, but his powers are on the fritz. And so they're able to get closer and uh, their relationship and how it kind of develops over the course uh, of, of this series so far has been really, really interesting. Chris, you will be glad to hear that uh, Nightcrawler makes an appearance um, and actually hires her to be sort of the lawyer for Krakoa. <laughs> so her job is basically to do deal with like legal wranglings between like people who live in uh, in, in uh, on Krakoa and and you know the you know the United States. So for example, Cyclops has issues uh, getting his Maryland driver's license renewed because he's living on Krakoa now. So so I thought that was a a cool little thing. Um, it's just a neat series. 
And so I, I was really enjoying it. And then in the most recent issue I read, I realized something. There had been no no fourth wall breaks yet. And then suddenly, boom, halfway through the issue, she turns to the reader and smacks you upside the head with this totally awesome fourth wall break. And I'm like, holy crap, they get it. Like the entire creative team on this series is clicking 100% of the time. Every issue lands, the characterization of every character is spot on, the art is gorgeous, the covers are ridiculous. This is quintessential She-Hulk. It's like uh, She-Hulk's greatest hits or something. It's like the perfect jumping on point and and and, and the perfect series. If you enjoyed even the, the MCU She-Hulk even a little bit, it's the perfect series to get into. Uh, nine issues as of recording have been released. Um, I think most of them uh, I think one through seven, I think, are on uh, Marvel Unlimited right now. If you want to get caught up digitally, um, it's totally worth a look. It is it is a really fantastic She-Hulk series, Chris. Yeah, I'm super excited to check this one out. Um, if for no other reason, Jen Bartel's doing the cover art. The one with her and Nightcrawler sitting and having tea is one of my favorite covers that I've seen in the past year. Um, so I'm definitely going to have to check this one out because I thoroughly enjoyed um, the Disney Plus series. Um and, and and I've been dying to do some deep dives, so I'm I'm definitely in on this one. Now, we'll, I will say again, although you don't like to hear it, you're going to probably have to read some Dan Slott if you want to do a deep dive, because that run is really, really good and some quintessential She-Hulk stuff. Um, I know I know your opinion of him is uh, kind of all over the place, but um, it's worth it, man. It's it's a good series. It's some highs and lows, and it's not Spider-Man, so I'm good. I'll be fine. <laughs> all right so what is your recommendation good god are we talking star wars again Chris? again 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 okay i'm i'm obsessive and i'm a completionist and i'm i'm all in when i'm when i'm doing something so i'm reading those books uh that we've talked about uh the heir to the empire trilogy and so i've been watching star wars i've been playing star wars and i've been reading star wars um but this was such a a happy coincidence because lego star wars the skywalker saga um was added to Game Pass um, on my Series S. And so this, I'm, I've always been a big fan of the Lego um, titles. I think they're always fun just running around. They're family friendly. So I like playing free play with my kids. Um, and this one is like one of the most revamped, um, like retooled versions of a Lego game. I think this might be my favorite one. You can start off... Um, with any of the first films of any of the three trilogies. So you can start with episode one, episode four, or episode seven. Um, and then there's like an entirely separate episode, if you will, for free play. And you can just go back and forth between whichever planets that you unlock in the story mode. Um, there are endless amounts of characters and ships that you can unlock. I'm trying to pull up the exact statistics here. Um, but it's just super fun. Um, the, the cut scenes and the videos, it's super slapstick and super funny. I've sent you some of them that I screen captured there. It's just hilarious. It kind of, it's kind of like self-inflicting humor. It makes fun of, um, the whole Luke and Leia smooch. Um, it makes fun of the absurdity of, no one knowing that Palpatine is evil of no one knowing that Padme and Anakin are married and or in love. Um, and then it's, it's just fun. So I think there's over like 300 playable characters. You can be Han frozen in carbonite and just pancake people. As you go by, you can be a, a number of the huts. Um, there's also several DLC packs where you can be any one of the characters from the different shows and series. So I've got, you know, I, I got the season pass on sale for that. And so I've got my girl Ahsoka, I uh, got my girl Hera, all the Star Wars Rebels characters. It's just endless amounts of fun um, and a great, great game to play with your family um, to just have a great time with and just really rekindles my love for star wars in the first place see this is really interesting i remember playing the uh the old um star wars lego games uh there was like a prequel trilogy an original trilogy and then there was one on the clone wars um and those were quite good i really enjoyed those so bringing all this 
uh, sort of, uh, you know, all, all the, the entire Skywalker saga under one roof. Um, do you you played the old ones as well? Do you think that this is a big improvement overall? Yeah, I think this takes everything you liked about... I think I've played the complete edition or something it was, it was called. Um, and then it kind of takes all the elements of you love of that and then like it just evolves and grows upon them. They kind of retooled gameplay where... Um, there are like if you're in a shootout or something you have to hide behind barriers um, and like turn around and shoot and take refuge that's super cool um they the the fascinating care there they've so separated everybody into character classes so there are tip they're regular heroes there are jedi characters dark side characters villain characters and the the most interesting one for me has been scavengers so ray uh, as she first appears in The Force Awakens as a scavenger, the Ewoks are scavengers, um, and they have to, like, build their own tools. But in order to unlock those, you have to find the blueprints for them. So it's a completely different gameplay that I've never seen in a LEGO game before that's pretty fascinating. And then they completely retooled all the famous lightsaber duels in the main stories. So it's been really, really fun just kind of diving head over heels into this. Yeah, that sounds like my kind of thing. I'm definitely going to have to to figure this one out, um, because uh, finding time to game is not always easy. But uh, holy smokes, this is definitely up my alley, man. And the best part is, as a Game Pass subscriber, it's no additional cost to you. Ah, Game Pass, how I love thee! We could just do like a running nerd combination of Game Pass every week, just about. So, yeah, that could be an ongoing feature. Favorite stuff on Game Pass. Um, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word. Uh, we thank you so much for riding along with us. If you like what you heard today, don't uh, don't be afraid to go like and subscribe this podcast on your favorite uh, podcasting platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or nerdbyword.com. And if you'd like to interact with us and tell us what your favorite fan theories are or what you would nerd comment, uh, comment to us, then uh, find us on social media. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at ThatNerdDave and at ThatNerdChris. And of course, thanks to the, uh, the the Twitter implosion that is currently happening, you can also find us in a couple other places, uh, including Hive. Uh, and despite my best efforts, you can't find Chris, but you can also find me on Mastodon. And as always, stay well and stay nerd. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.